it's all about what do I currently value in my life? What is it that I, at my core, know is true and important to me? And then are my actions aligning with those values? It is never perfect. It is never one-to-one. But the closer that I can get it, the more I feel like I'm successful. Welcome to the Sensitive Success Podcast. I'm Frida Carbo, founder of Sensitive Success Circle, the mastermind for sensitive coaches and change makers who want to create success in their way with the help of their sensitivity. I have spent the last decade recreating my life. I moved from Sweden to New Zealand with my husband and two kids, working online, creating the life and business that I love with a mission to help others do the same. One of the things I learned is that we have so much wisdom inside when we learn to trust and take aligned action. And even though we're responsible for our journey, we don't have to do it alone. I do this work because I'm committed to helping highly sensitive, introverted, intuitive coaches and changemakers to do the work they are called to do in a way that works for them. I know it's possible and creates so many ripples. My intention with these episodes is for you to be inspired, empowered, and to know that you're not alone in your business adventure. If you haven't already, come over and connect with me on Instagram at Frida Carbo. Thank you for being here because it means that you're creating sensitive success too, which is precisely what the world needs. Welcome. In today's conversation, we're talking to Zia Hassan. He is an ICF certified career pivot coach. He helps people navigate the emotional and technical challenges that comes along with the career pivot. With a career path that has taken him from songwriter to salesperson and college professor to YouTuber and a lot in between, he knows what he's talking about. Having lots of passions and always wanting to learn new things, he's a multi-potential light, and I'm looking forward to learn more about that in today's conversation. Welcome, Zia. Thank you so much for having me, Rita. I uh, that that is the most succinct and concise explanation of my life I've ever heard. So thank you for that. <laughs> Amazing. So tell us a bit more about your journey and how you come to do what you do right now. Sure, it's been a long road, a long and windy road of many, many career pivots. So I'll try and keep it short. But I've always had the obsession with making things, and I recently learned that that making mechanism comes from wanting to learn things and then apply them. So the making is more of like a side product of wanting to learn as much as I possibly can. And my career path has kind of reflected the nature of that personality. And I started off my career, I suppose, when I was seven years old as a songwriter (laughs) and then became kind of technologically proficient throughout my teen years, which then led to a job with IBM at the start of my career as a consultant, I was the type of person that sat between the tech developers and then the client we were serving. And I was like the translator. So I was good with people, but good with technology. And so I was kind of the person that was is translating the computer code to the clients and then vice versa. And that job got very old very quickly. And I pivoted into something that I had no experience in, but thought was a passion of mine and ended up being quite a passion of mine. I was right, but that was teaching. So I taught elementary school, which is kids that are aged eight to 11. That was the range that I taught. I know grades are different internationally. So I'll just say ages eight to 11. And that was an amazing journey as well. It was only four years, but it felt like 14. It felt like I grew a lot during that time. 
And one thing that I learned is that going from a very boring job or a job that at least I found very boring to a job that was a little bit more exciting is that uh, it can overtake your life. The highs can be very high and the lows can also be very low. And so I looked to get out of that career and I pivoted toward kind of taking those two careers and smashing them together. And I worked in ed tech for a while. And while I was in ed tech, I sort of realized it was the right career for me, but I kind of went to it because it was the first thing that was available. I was just trying to leave the classroom, right? I just wanted to get out of teaching. It was a great career, but I was very stressful and I was missing weddings and funerals and all these other things. And so in that time, because I was a contractor, I worked with Microsoft. And during that time, I said yes to a whole bunch of opportunities, anything that came my way, one of those things being a teaching job, uh, teaching college. And I, I gave a presentation at a local community college. I gave a Microsoft presentation when I was training with them. And uh, it just so happened the person that trained, that hires new professors was in the room and talked to me about working there. So I was like, Yes. Very intuitive because, you know, it's interesting to offer someone a job the first time you meet them and interesting <laughs> to accept also the first time you're meeting them. And that led to a coach training program. This college has an amazing coach training program, which I now uh, get to be one of the instructors for, which is pretty fun. And since then, I've left Microsoft and I'm running my own show, running my own business, doing a variety of things. It's like a pie of various pieces of this pie that make up my work life, but I wouldn't have it any other way. And my boss is a lot more understanding than most bosses I've ever worked with since it's uh, it's me. <laughs> Perfect. And yeah. how do you navigate being highly sensitive in all this? That's a great question. I think pivoting and being highly sensitive for me have come hand in hand because when I am in a situation that has gone stale, if I don't feel passion anymore for what I'm doing, if I don't feel like excited to get out of bed every day, it goes from being a fun, high-paced, fast-paced job to being a complete, slow, muddy walk through life. And for me, it feels a lot more, I guess, painful than it does for a lot of people, even down to like the way that HSPs process their senses. For instance, uh, sound, even down to where things like little office sounds would trigger me and would bring me back to that state of like not wanting to be there. When I worked in a school and I knew it was time to leave, the sound of the announcement bell coming on and the person coming over the loudspeaker would immediately put this like feeling of fear in my chest. To this day, if I go back in a school, because I've been back in many, many schools and I hear that sound or smell the linoleum of the floors. I attach that to the sentiment of being there. And so it's kind of like a guide. I've learned to see it as more of a guide. When I worked at IBM, I overstayed. It was a longer engagement than I wanted it to be. And toward the end, it was just like I was describing the sounds, the sights, everything was overwhelming. It never used to be, but it was because, and I was always anxious. I was always having all sorts of anxiety symptoms. And so finally, this like nagging, tugging feeling, I had to honor that. And when I left, I was like, ah, oh, what a relief. But I started seeing it as, hmm, maybe when you start feeling those sensations, that overly sensitive feeling of being in this environment that you're in, maybe it's time before it gets too overwhelming to start thinking about why this is happening and start to investigate a little bit. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I feel the same way. 
because we respond well to both positive and negative. So when we find that the environment we're not in is not for us anymore, it's like we need to get out of there as fast as possible. <laughs> yes, yes, because it feels like the walls are closing in, or at least it did yeah. for me in that case. Mm. So what is success to you? I mean, it's very self-defined. I think it's individual for every single person what success means. So for me, the way I define it is how do my values, my core values specifically, align with my actions that I'm taking day to day? So for me, it's not about how much money I'm necessarily making or uh, what position I have in a particular company or if I got a promotion or any of that. It's all about what do I currently value in my life? What is it that I, at my core, know is true and important to me? And then are my actions aligning with those values? It is never perfect. It is never one-to-one. But the closer that I can get it, the more I feel like I'm successful. There have been times in my life, for instance, where when I was with IBM, I was making a consultant salary and I was living at home. So that was like extra profit. I didn't have to pay rent or anything. This is my early 20s. And when I left to become a teacher, I knew that that was part of what I valued. At the time, I valued being myself in a role, not being so corporate. I value and still value creative expression. And I saw teaching as a way to do that. And so even though I took a gigantic pay cut leaving that job and coming to my first teaching job, it still aligned with my value. So I would still consider that successful. So the core values is something that you talk about, how important it is to to have those. So how do you find those? How do you know what those are? Good question. If I were to walk up to you or anyone, I mean, you've probably done the work, but I imagine if I were to walk up to somebody on the street and I were to say, hey, person, what are your core values? It is likely that they would have some idea. They'd be able to give me some semblance of an answer. And that would probably be based on a lot of things, right? We think we have core values and sometimes we know what they are. Sometimes we have strong convictions and we know what we believe. And then other times it's hard to tease apart our personal core values with what other people in our lives value. So for instance, you'll meet people who uh, become a lawyer or a doctor Those are just the prime examples. There are many other examples of this, of course, because their parents valued those types of careers. And I don't know if you've ever met anybody like this, that as they go through their life, they get to a point, as they go through their career, they get to a point where they say, this really isn't for me. And I kind of did it because my parents kind of pushed me into it. I never really got to sit and think about what my core values are. And that's the key. Very few people actually sit and think about what their core values are. I help people with this as a coach because that's part of what I do, but very few people actually stop and think and say, what what exactly is important to me? So to answer the question, how do you figure those out? Well, everybody has values and we could have hundreds of values. There are many things I could value that could change per day. The spotlight kind of shifts to different values as I go about my day, go about my week. The core values are the values that if I don't honor them, if I don't have some sort of practice, some sort of translation from those values into action, I will feel this lack. And the problem with the lack is that the lack, this feeling of like a sort of emptiness or that I'm not really like living up to my full potential, it's not a super specific, not a super directive feeling. It's almost like a feeling of being hollow. 
And the only way then to figure out, well, what is it that I'm not honoring is to look deeply into what is really important. So for me, when I'm coaching people, I often go in the side door. And what I mean by that is that I ask people questions like, think of someone you admire and then tell me about their qualities. Think about something that bothers you, that irritates you, and then give me the opposite according to you. Where do you find flow in your work or your day? Where do you lose all sense of time, right? And we brainstorm. The things that they list are not necessarily their values or their core values. Sometimes it's just a list of brainstorming things. But when we look back at that list, there are certain words that stick out. And then we break those words apart and go even deeper. And I coach them and interrogate and probe until we end up with a list. And even that list, once it's done, we look at that list and say, is that you? Are there things that are missing? And it really takes someone on the outside to say, what does that word actually mean? Is that really the sentiment? Can we be more specific? I found with core values, the more specific you can be, the more useful those core values become because they become like a little lens that you can see the world through and you can make decisions based on your little lens of core values, which is what with my clients, we always start with an understanding of their core values. We do a deep dive. And for the rest of our time together, we'll move on to other things, but it always comes back to which values are being honored. And if they're going to make a decision, for instance, how are they going to make that decision? What values are they going to use? What core values are they going to use to make that decision? Love that. Yeah. So important and great questions to kind of start digging into it without having to internalize them or take a perspective from the outside. Great. So you talk about multi-potentialite as well. What is that? I think that many of us can relate to that as well. There's so many things that we want to do. Yeah. I was recently in a a LinkedIn thread about multi-potentialite. So someone had said in their headline for LinkedIn, I'm a multi-potentialite. And I have identified in the past as a multi-potentialite. So I connected with this person and the original author of this thread chimed in. And this is a, all in the, in the space of careers. And we're talking about switching careers, pivoting. And the original poster said, well, everybody's a multi-potentialite, aren't they? I mean, everybody has different interests. Everybody has things that's seemingly unrelated threads. So what is, why identify as a multi-potentialite if everybody has that same quality? And it's a great question. The truth is there's a book and a, it's also a TED talk by a woman named Emily Wapnick. And she has her own consulting firm. And I'm not exactly sure. I think it's a leadership related service that she provides. I don't actually know much about her firm, but I do know that her book, How to Be Everything, is all about this idea. And I think she even coined the term multipotentialite. The idea behind multipotentialite is that it is a person with a career that it describes and refers to a particular type of, uh, I want to call it indecision or unrest about what path to pursue. There have been so many times in my life where I've been working in something, like for instance, I was at IBM and that those particular skills, had I kept doing them, I would have probably been in a better financial spot today than I was back then. But the problem is I don't have just one interest. I have so many. And at the time, I was really, and I still am. You can probably see on my wall here, I have guitars. So I'm a singer, songwriter. I write music. I record music in this room that I'm sitting in. And I did that as a hobby. I used to work at IBM in the day. And then at night, I would go and play shows at clubs. 
And uh, it wasn't enough to really be a full, even a part-time job, but it was a way to honor those core values of expression that I wasn't getting at work. Now (laughs) that I've sort of have two kids and it's harder to do those as hobbies, I've had to figure out how can I build a career that allows me to honor these different interests that I have? It's a weird compulsion. There are probably some people who have other interests, but they're saying to themselves, well, I don't really need to honor them. I mean, it's my life is working just fine as it is. Not me. I need to do it all. And my day might consist of writing a custom song for somebody because I do that for folks. They'll tell me their story. I'll coach them a little bit. I'll write a song based on what they tell me, whether it's for their children or their spouse or whatever. I might move on from that to a coaching session where I'm coaching someone through a career pivot. I might move on from there to a consulting deal that I'm working on where I'm helping uh, an educational institution do something technologically savvy. I might move on and do something else from there. And this always changes. It always shifts. There are times when I'm working on something completely different than any of those things. Those are just what I named or the things that I worked on today. For instance, I might be working on a podcast or a YouTube video. The point is I have to be strategic about how I work these in. And and Emily Wapnick in her book has a lot of different configurations for how it could look. Now, for instance, you could have a career that is you do one type of job, you found the right fit where you can do all these things in the same job, or you can bring all these things into the same job and you have leadership or managers that are understanding of these needs and actually see it as as an asset rather than something that takes away from your role. Then there's some people who need to have a collection of part-time jobs to make this work. And that's sort of the situation I find myself in most of the time is I kind of have to have these separate buckets to bring it all together. And so this is, to me, such a huge realization. Actually, through a coaching session, I was being coached. Someone recommended, the coach recommended this book to me. And I went and checked it out. And from the first few pages, I was like, ooh, this is me. And those are the type of people, multi-potentialites like me, who let their careers, it's easy to let your career happen to you because you can't really pick something and everyone kind of wants you for your individual talents. So whoever's going to pay the highest price, that ends up what you go with, but then you're never really satisfied, or at least I'm never really satisfied. And I can tell you that because I'm a multi-potentialite or identify that way, whatever I'm doing right now, I will pivot at some point. Right. I hope to keep things the same. I've been writing songs for, let's see, since I was seven years old. So I'm 37 now. So it's 30 years of songwriting. And I don't see that slowing down anytime soon, but there are various parts of my life, kind of like metamorphosis, where you shed a layer and you gain something new and you're continuously growing. There are people that don't, everyone grows, I think, in their career or they become unhappy. But for a multi-potentialite, it's all about figuring out the configuration, the pieces of the pie, as a friend of mine likes to say. That sounds awesomely refreshing in this online world of niching down and just doing one thing and just decide what you want to do. So I think that many can relate to that. And if there's someone out there that listening and really feel that, oh, I really want to do more of this, or I feel like I don't have this expression in my business, what would you recommend for them? I think it's important to understand that not every single interest you have has to be integrated into your business. It could also be just integrated into your life in some way. However, for someone like me, people find value in the things that I do. So for instance, when I write songs, that could easily just be a hobby. I could just record and write songs and play them on the weekends. 
But for whatever reason, people find value not in necessarily buying my CDs because no one does that anymore. It's all Spotify free, but they do find value in me telling their particular story through song. And so as a business owner who writes custom songs, I can play a show and sell one CD and make $10 American dollars. I could sell a custom song and make way more than $10 just from one sale. And so to me, that's like, hmm, there's a value here. And it's something that I love doing. So I'm trading that value for someone's someone's money and giving them something that is absolutely unique. And so I, it took a long time to realize that that was a way to use music and actually make money from it. But I don't think that it always has to be something that makes you money or is part of your business. Now, if you are somebody who wants to think about this, I recommend reading Emily's book and figuring out, do you want to build a career where you integrate some of this stuff? For instance, maybe you um, you work in a job where you could actually, let's say you got you have training as a coach and you work as a manager. How can you bring more coaching into your job? Or maybe you work with clients and you're doing a lot of telling them what to do and giving them advice. How can you bring in more of that coaching, more inquiry-based into your field? And it's about being intentional and saying, okay, where is there room for movement here? Where is there room for expansion? And of course, it has to be something that is approved by the people that you're working for, at least most of the time. But I think it's all about taking initiative. Most people are just whatever you tell them to do. And when it comes to their work, they're just going to do it. They don't take initiative and say, I want to do it my way. This has gotten me into trouble before. <laughs> there are some employers that I work for that don't want the Zia way. They want it their way. And that's understandable. But I've learned over the years, I don't work well in those situations. <laughs> I work well in the situations where I get to decide the type of thing that I bring to it. So intention, I think, is the word that I keep coming back to. Think about what you really want to integrate and then figure out how you're going to make it happen in a realistic way. That might mean doing an entire pivot and revamping how you think of things. But it also might mean a simple conversation with your boss. Love that. And it also leaves a lot of room for, as you say, expansion and innovation and like bringing all these different things together. It's just getting out of the mindset of thinking things have to be in a certain way, I think is a big one for that. Absolutely. Great. So how do you use your sensitivity as your superpower? Mm. Oh, I love this question so much. For me, I grew up thinking and being told by most people that I was too sensitive. Now, why did they see me as too sensitive? Probably because I would cry a lot. Adults really don't like it when kids cry, I found. <laughs> it's not as if they think that they're being bad people by crying or that they're being weak necessarily. Sometimes a little bit of that came out through uh, the fact that, you know, being a young boy, you're expected to, you know, sort of put those emotions away, tough up, you know, get a thick skin as if you can just kind of grow a thick skin by, you know, like thinking really hard about it. Adults don't like it when kids cry. I have found even when, you know, I, I recently brought my son over to my parents' house and he started to cry about something. He's two at the time. He was like two and a half. And they immediately started saying, don't cry. Don't cry, Desi. That's his name, Desi. It struck me that I realized we are trained because I think when we have newborns, we're trained to immediately rush in the minute they're crying. They're trying to tell us something. They're hungry. They're cold. They need a diaper change, whatever it might be. 
So we we're trained to do that. But at some point, and not that soon after their newborns, the crying becomes a way of actually processing. But we're still stuck in this mentality of what can I do to get them to stop crying? So all this to say that I grew up with this thing of like, don't cry, just hold it in. If you're going to cry, you're going to embarrass yourself. And especially if I cried in front of anybody at school, but it wasn't just crying. It was also, I felt intense joy in ways that others could. I'd listen to music and make noises, like audible noises out loud. And people would be like, why are you making weird noises? It's because it, it moved me so deeply. I'd watch movies and just be like speechless at the end, whereas other people could walk out of the theater. I'd sit there kind of frozen in my seat. And so for the longest time, I thought this was a flaw. This was a problem with me. I need to work on this. I need to be less sensitive. Uh, I need to uh, be able to, to roll with things and, and get ribbed a bit more. And I realized by reading, I think it was The Highly Sensitive Person. There's a book, The Highly Sensitive Person. I'm sure you know it, um, being involved with HSPs. And when I read the piece, the passage about, and I can't remember if it, maybe it was Susan Cain who wrote this, but, uh, but having a finely tuned nervous system suddenly it all became clear. Like even to this day, I just moved last summer and for a variety of reasons. But one of the reasons for me was that in our old house, we lived on a street with a lot of race cars. There were a lot of racers that lived in our neighborhood. And this loud engine at the middle of the night, I had to start sleeping with a white noise machine. I still sleep with a white noise machine. Those situations, I realized uh, airplanes also, like if I go on an airplane ride, my noise canceling headphones are on the entire time for the most part. It's harder with kids, but you get the idea. So I suddenly realized this is a gift. And a lot of my students that I taught, I have a student that I used to teach whose mother referred to her as a drama queen. And I used to tell her, you know, I think you're the same way as me. I think that you feel deeply and it's actually a gift if you learn to see it in the right way. So how do I use my sensitivity as a superpower in a variety of ways? The first thing that comes to mind is as a parent, I have two children. One of them is an infant and one of them is just turned four. And the way that I am able to be sensitive to their needs it would not happen uh, without the flip side of also feeling all these feelings and being so finely tuned. I can sense different changes in emotion. I can make certain choices as a parent that I wouldn't necessarily be able to do if I wasn't reading under the surface. The same goes for coaching. You know, you're a coach, so you get this. When I'm talking to someone, sometimes I drop into this level of listening to them where I'm not even really listening to their words anymore. I'm just listening to their emotions. I'm just listening to the tone of the voice and I'm making observations about that tone and they'll say, oh yeah, you're right. I was talking about something as if I didn't care, but like actually I'm very sad about it. It brings them to this realization because I'm able to just say, hmm, I sense sadness in what you're saying. Is that something that you're feeling, right? I never really attach to these things, but they're there and, and usually they're accurate. But also just in general, because I am like this, I find that when I have just regular conversations with my friends, it tends to get deep pretty quickly. I find people who are highly sensitive don't enjoy small talk. That could be a generalization, but I have found that people that I meet just like me, we like to get deep really quickly. So if somebody's telling their biography, their life story, where they lived and what year, I kind of zone out. But the minute they start talking about something that's important to them, I zoom in really closely. 
And I suddenly, because that's where all the emotion lives is what's important. All that surface stuff to me is so mind numbing and apologies to anyone who's ever told me their life story and didn't know that I was just zoning out, but it's true. I can't help it. I can't help, but turn my mind off in those situations. That makes it so that every conversation I have, I learn something. And the person that I'm talking to sometimes, most of the time I would say, learn something, even if it's relatively small. That's not a conversation that you have every day. I've heard this phrase very, very often. No one's ever talked to me about this before. No one's ever asked me this before, right? In coaching conversations, but in social conversations too. And I love that. I love that I'm able to open that door for people and to have a conversation that they've never rehearsed before. Hey, we, how many conversations do we have where we just repeat the same thing we've told someone else? It's a brand new thing we're making. We're being creative in conversation. I love that. And I almost aim for it now when I have conversations with people. Yeah, wonderful. I love that too. Definitely a superpower or many superpowers that you mentioned. Wonderful. Is there anything else you would like to add? I would say if you are an HSP, a highly sensitive person, and you're listening to this, or I'll be direct, (laughs) if you feel like your sensitivity is holding you back in any part of your life, just know that you're not alone, but also know that the same thing that's holding you back, that quality could very well be the same thing that unlocks a new door for you. And it is all about intention, understanding your core values like I talked about earlier, And then figuring out what to do about it, figuring out what the next tiny action is. There's a great book that you may know called Getting Things Done by David Allen. It's a huge methodology, but the most important part for HSPs, I think, is that if you make a to-do list and you write down, I need to buy eggs, I need to get milk, and I need to write a book. One of those things weighs a lot more than the others. And for an HSP, It's easy to get overwhelmed by write a book. But if you break that down into a thousand steps, and I were to ask you what the very first step is of writing your book, you might tell me, I don't know, talk into my phone, into the voice memo app about my idea. And then I might say to you, can you do that? Yeah, that's easy. I can do that. Well, now you're one step closer to your goal of writing a book, but you didn't overwhelm yourself because you broke down that project into steps. So that's something for everybody to think about is if you are stuck, whether it's your sensitivity or whether it's something else that's keeping you stuck, what is the next tiny action that you can take? The next tiny, tiny action. If you think about it and you're like, "Mm, I could never do that, make it smaller. Maybe it's not talking into a voice memo. Maybe it's writing down the title of a book. Maybe it's writing down five potential titles. Maybe it's having a conversation with your mother about your ideas and just getting her feedback on it. Whatever is not too comfortable, but also not too difficult. Somewhere a little bit in that line of discomfort, take that step. You can do it. You don't have to wait on anybody to do it. And you get one step closer. Once you've accomplished that, the very, very, very next step suddenly comes into view. And before you know it, you have a book and that's magic. Love it. Such a great tip. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sia, for coming on and sharing your wisdom and knowledge. Thank you, Frida. Thank you for the work that you do. It's been wonderful to talk to you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. This podcast is put together for you to see what is possible and how to use your sensitivity to create success in your way. If you know anyone who would find this conversation useful, please share. And if you share this on social media, tag me in and I would love to reshare it. 
Come over and connect with me on Insta at Frida Carbo and tell me your biggest takeaway from this episode. Thank you for listening and remember to keep shining so that those who need your help can find you.